Shatter the stigma, mend the mind. Welcome to the live broadcast of Talk Revolution, hosted by Dr. Paul Sambataro, neurocognitive scientist, author, and retired school psychologist. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Talk Revolution. This is our fifth broadcast on BBS Radio. We are here today to discuss current topics with a new perspective based on cognitive function, keeping the fires of innovation, pioneering, and our shared culture of giving, burning for future generations. Today, I would like to start this show with our heartfelt support for everyone who has been caught up in Hurricane Florence and the flooding aftermath. I hope all those who seek help, such as financial and medical services, are able to receive the help they need. Having traveled much of the world, my observations are that Americans, despite our individual philosophical, religious, and political differences, we will go out of our way to lend support to those in need. The orientation of these discussions is to bring to light the importance of the underlying foundation of solving our most social problems, disabilities, poverty, violence, crime, and all those society ills we rail against, but with little regard to consequence and efficacy. Today's podcast episode is focused on culture and cognitive functioning. We have touched briefly in our previous podcast on emotional processing, pain, autism, special education, and cognitive functioning. Today, we will discuss the culture as an adaptive mechanism for cognitive functioning. This is a call-in podcast. You may at any time feel free to call in with any questions you may have in regards to cognitive function and our program of emotional budgeting. You may call toll-free 888-627-6008 in the U.S. or directly if you're outside this country, 323-744-4831. For our purposes this evening, we are considering a broad definition of culture to begin with. As one of many means in which it provides structure to our lives. So culture today, we are not trying to define it in specific, but as a structure, which as a means in which it provides structure to our lives. Culture is only as effective as its association with population caring capacity. This is caring capacity for a population is that point in which the maximum number of people can be sustained at any given point in an environment. And culture as structure provides a means for our interaction. The influence of culture on emotion. Culture can have a profound impact on the way in which people display, perceive, and experience emotions. And please, this is, again, all of our podcasts are in association with cognitive functioning. And so, in the end of this, we will bring it back to our program of emotional budgeting. And at any time you have questions, feel free to call in. Key takeaways of culture. 
The culture in which we live provides structure, guidelines, expectations, and rules to help us understand, interpret, and express various emotions. So a very structured culture will provide very structured rules, which will be have less flexibility and fewer choices. Another key point, a cultural display rule is a culturally specific standard that governs the types and frequencies of emotional displays considered acceptable by a given culture. Cultural scripts dictate how positive and negative emotions should be experienced and displayed. They may also guide how people choose to relate, regulate their emotions and ultimately influencing an individual's emotional experience. Again, this is providing structures and answers to people's questions in regards to how they should behave. Cultural context also acts as cues. When people are trying to interpret facial expressions, this means that different cultures may interpret the same social context in very different ways. This, in a very structured society, would give answers in a very structured manner on how one behaves and gives answers, provides a problem-solving pathway. Despite different emotional display rules, our ability to recognize and produce basic facial expressions of emotion appears to be universal. In fact, research has discovered seven basic types of expressions, emotions expressed in human faces, sadness, happiness, disgust, surprise, anger, contempt, and fear. Complex emotions, emotions such as jealousy, love, and pride are different from basic emotions and are more likely to be dependent on cultural influences than our more basic emotions. So we will, for our purposes, emotion, the definition that would be the complex psychophysiological experience of an individual state of mind as it interacts with biochemical and environmental influences. In one of our podcasts, we did discuss some physiological uh, details in regards to emo uh, emotions. And again, we come back to those experiences. Culture, as a definition, a shared set of beliefs, attitude, norms, values, and behavior organized around a central theme and found among speakers of one language in one time period in one geographic region. This usually regards, is regarded to in most research as populations. One details the type, the boundaries, and of a population that one is speaking to. Again, these are a set boundaries in which rules are made to answer the adaptive needs of cognitive functioning. Culture is also the beliefs, values, and behavior, material objects that constitute a people's way of life can have a profound impact on how people display, perceive, experience motions. The culture in which we live provides structure, guidelines, expectations, and rules to help us understand and interpret various emotions. So we are coming to the context of why culture is extremely important when it comes to processing emotions. 
expressing emotions. A cultural display rule dictates the types and frequencies of an emotional display considered acceptable within a certain culture. These rules may also guide how people choose to regulate their emotions. Ultimately, influencing an individual emotional experience and leading to a general cultural difference in the experience and display of emotion. Again, we're really discussing how structure influences receptivity, problem solving, and the ability to dictate what our behaviors should be in a given situation. So for example, in many Asian cultures, social harmony is prioritized over individual gain, whereas Westerners in much of Europe and the United States prioritize individual self-promotion. Research, again, all of this is based on different research, which has shown that individuals from the United States are more likely to express negative emotions such as fear, anger, and disgust both alone and in the presence of others, while Japanese, for instance, uh, Japanese individuals are more likely to do so while alone. Furthermore, individuals from cultures that tend to emphasize social cohesion are more likely to suppress their own emotional reaction in order to first evaluate what response is most appropriate given the situation. In other words, that individual seeks a problem-solving solution to an emotional question that is structured. Culture also differ in the social consequence that they assign to different emotions. In the United States, men are often directly or indirectly ostracized for crying. In the Utku Eskimo population, the expression of anger can result in social ostracism. And this would, of course, be extremely important in small society where resources are limited outside of their community. Within a particular culture, different rules may also be internalized as a function of individuals' gender, class, family background, and other factors. For instance, there is some evidence that men and women differ in regulation of their emotions, perhaps due to culturally-based gender norms and expectations. All of this in a changing constantly changing society. So interpreting emotions. In everyday life, information from the environment influences our understanding of what facial expressions mean. In much the same way, cultural context also acts as a cue when people are trying to interpret facial expressions. People can attend to only a small number of the available cues in their complex and continuously changing environments. And increasing evidence suggests that people from different cultural backgrounds allocate their attention very differently. This means that people from different cultures may interpret the same social context in very different ways. Some of the questions are, our emotions universal. And although conventions regarding the display of emotion differ from culture to culture, our ability to recognize and produce associated facial expressions appears to be universal. Research comparing facial expressions across different cultures 
has supported that theory, that there are seven universal emotions, each associated with a distinct facial expression. That these emotions are universal means that they operate independently of culture and language. These seven emotions are, again, repeat, happiness, surprise, sadness, fright, disgust, contempt, and anger. Even congenitally blind individuals, people who are born blind, produce the same facial expression associated with these emotions, despite never having had the opportunity to observe them in other people. This is a cue, I believe, to genetic expression and, again, to cognitive functions, adaptation, and producing culture that in turn provides support for our carrying capacity as a human group or any biological or animal group uh, is necessary that every adaptation maximizes in a given situation our ability to have offspring and sustain them. This further supports the theory that the patterns in facial muscle activity are universal for the facial expressions of these particular emotions. Again, in research, uh, Behavioral Brain Science 2014 Expressing Emotions, a cultural display rule dictates the types and frequencies of emotional displays. So considering acceptable within a certain culture, these rules may also guide how people choose to regulate their emotions. Again, we are really here in this research to support the understanding how important culture is in giving us nonverbal and verbal cues to problem solving and our emotional state. So this depending on the structure and where we live and, and how strong, how regulated, how much culture regulates our lives is how much structure it provides to giving us cues and nonverbal cues and structure to providing us a pathway to problem solving. Ultimately, influencing an individual's emotional experience and leading to general cultural differences in the experience and display of emotion. For example, in many Asian cultures, social harmony is prioritized over individual gain, whereas Westerners and much of Europe and the United States prioritize individual self-promotion. Research has shown that individuals from the United States, again, this is repetitive in some aspects, but again, it's the expression of our emotion, likely to express negative Emotions such as fear and disgust, both alone and in the presence of others, while Japanese individuals are more likely to do alone. Cultures also differ in the social consequence that they assign to different emotions. In the United States, men are more often directly or indirectly ostracized for crying. And as a result, uh, again, this is... Um, in regards to differences in how we express our emotions. Within a particular culture, different rules may also be internalized as a function of individual gender and emotions due to culturally differences based on gender norms and expectations. 
Interpreting emotions. In everyday life, information from environmental influences, our understanding of what facial expression means. In much the same way, cultural context also acts as a cue when people are trying to interpret facial expression. People can attend to only a small number of available cues. And in this way, again, interpreting emotions is largely based on the adaptive development of our culture, giving context to how we problem solve our way through social tasks. This would amount to increasing our cognitive function and increasing our ability to function on a daily basis. Humans possess great capacity for behavioral and cultural change, but our ability to manage change is still limited. Change is the mantra of modern life in our society today, in our particular America. It may not be in an isolated community at this time, but here it is uh, marketing and social change have come with the increase of information. We embrace change as a virtue, but are desperate to escape from an undesired changes that appear to beyond our control. So now we see the untethering of our ability and our control of applying culture to problem solving our social questions. We crave positive change at all levels, individuals seeking to improve our, themselves, neighborhoods seeking a greater sense of community, nations attempting to function as corporate units, the multinational community attempting to manage the global economy and the environment. In discussing cultural evolution, Toby and Cosmides observed that behavioral differences among human populations do not necessarily signify the cultural transmission of learned information. Instead, they can reflect massively modular minds responding to different environmental cues without any learning or social transmission whatsoever. So in studies of cross-cultural communication, I suggest that communication styles of individuals changes over time in host country as they adapt to new cultural environment. Communication style may not reflect changes in behavior, but should be considered in context of each situation rather than in a stereotypic light. Understanding the communication trait supports not only organizations, individual strategies, and adapting to cross-cultural changes, increasing the efficacy of the decision-making process necessary to respond to complex cultural situations, problem-solving, and taking action. Again, culture is a construct of our minds, literally, a construct of cognitive functioning to bring order to our lives and to provide that information for social adaptation to increase caring capacity. And this is the interplay between so many different ideas. <clears throat> Culture <clears throat> provides structure. 
An example that I did not have, I believe, in the Autism Podcast, but mentioned briefly in how important structure is for those with autism spectrum. And an example of many parents that I have talked to, the successful outcome of their children adapting with autism was, for example, being enrolled or participating in the Boy Scouts because this provided an intense structure around their daily routines, purpose, and so on, enough to give them a way to allow them to catch up when they were older. And uh, at that point, they felt very successful and were able to function independently, whereas they may not have, uh, without that additional structure growing up, away from, uh, mind you, the Boy Scouts is away usually from the parents in the separate situation. So that's just an example of where culture, which promotes structure, resulted in a cohesive uh, group such as the Boy Scouts, and that promotes, again, the culture uh, for which is adapted to provide for people with different, with the cognitive functioning needs. So culture provides structure for the interaction between humans and their environment. Culture likely reflects the best nonverbal and verbal rules for human conduct at any given moment in a given environment. As our environment and situation between population changes, so do best outcomes of adaptation to that change situation. Results. When situation changes, increase stress on a given population and thus increase anxiety. The only outcome that counts in biology are the factors that favor increased caring capacity. So that is the drive, the unseen drive that we don't normally think about is that pushing to increase caring capacity. So there's a push within the human species to increase population at a sustained level. Now, say it's sustainability we never really know because we're always pushing the caring capacity and culture is an adaptation to do that very thing. And in the given situation, environmental situation, or social situation. Culture provides structure for increasing the capacity within the limits of our genetic expression and environmental factors. Culture and environment. Some cultures can be seen to adapt slowly, others adapt quickly, but this is likely to their environment, but this is likely due to differences in groups that possess certain genetic expression. This is different than a gene that is within the genome or within a person and the expression of that gene. So sometimes we can have genes that do not, aren't expressed or express themselves on the spectrum. Predisposed to accepting and embracing change. So a genetic expression predisposed to accepting and embracing change. Culture helps populations maximize our carrying capacity in a given environment. For example, there is an assumed lack of water resource in a desert environment, 
which can be observed to see a fierce protection of resources by individual and groups. The outcome is not only has been not only genetic, uh, it's not only provided or forced genetic adaptations, but also likely cultural adaptations to re regulate interactions between groups who vie for that resource while promoting each group's potential for maximizing its population. This interplay between culture, environment, and cognitive function will be continued in an upcoming podcast, The Bipolar Label. The understanding of how culture provides stability and answers the question of conduct is vital to understanding where and what our culture is providing us now. It is my belief that our fast-changing society in America and information is affecting change faster than the development of structured culture. In other words, we have an increase in choices, less structured guidance to provide us with a sense of security in making choices. The emotional budget program was developed with that change in mind to provide and support the brain with structure that is for many individuals confusing or constantly changing. Culture provides verbal and nonverbal cues for our behavior. It provides answers to our behavior as per situation in the absence of strong cultural cues. Does this mean that regulations and laws are a substitution? They are to an extent that our behavior responds and is motivated to meet that demand. But again, that is the backwards between cognitive functioning and behavior versus behavior affecting cognitive functioning. It is much more difficult for a person to control their understanding of how they think and how they brain functions than when the brain is supported and behavior follows their cognitive functioning. Cultural trauma. I would like to touch on cultural trauma because it is a un, often unthought, unexamined portion of our behavior. Cultural trauma has been a major part of American society since slavery. Cultural trauma occurs, and this is according to Jeffrey Alexander, occurs when members of a collectively of a collective activity feel they have been subjected to a horrendous event that leaves indelible marks upon their group consciousness, marking their memories forever and changing their future identity in fundamental and irrevocable ways. So this can be actually for many groups. Not only would it be for the first settlers, but also perhaps for the American natives, Native Americans, uh, having their lives change, the first settlers having to change their lives, the Civil War in which both those who were enslaved would be forever collectively traumatized, the Civil War, the South, 
feeling they've been traumatized as a collective and so on. So every group can have some feeling of cultural trauma. The importance is understanding how that cultural trauma reflects not only their culture, but their attitude, their perception, and their rationalization for their behavior. So everyone as a group, not just as an individual, can objectify or identify a cultural trauma for one reason or another. But it is how we rationalize and how behavior is formed from that rationalizing or understanding of that cultural trauma. As we develop it here, cultural trauma is, first of all, an empirical scientific concept suggesting new meaning and casual relationships between previously unrelated events, structures, perceptions, and actions. But this new scientific concept also illuminates an emerging domain of social responsibility and political action. It is by constructing cultural traumas that social groups, national society, and even entire civilizations self-create self-identification for and purposes for their grouping. Peter Stumpka writes, change is a universal pervasive factor of social life. And cultural trauma is part of the cognitive function trying to adapt to that change. So change in itself can also be part of a collectivized trauma in both horrendous ways and just the actual change itself. How culture shapes emotions. One of the first impressions we get when we set foot in a new culture is how different things are. We spot the obvious first, the buildings, the language, the food, the air. As we unpack our bags and make new friends, our vision sharpens. We move our gaze away from our physical environment to the people who inhabit We observe how they work and how they live and how they talk and how they feel. And it takes many seasons of observing these differences until one day they become our own. I'm going to share briefly, I'm going to share part of this podcast with a pioneer in cultural psychology, Bacha Mesquita who has been researching the role of culture in our emotional lives for decades. Her work has shed light not only on the differences of emotional experience around the world, but as well as identifying the culture phenomena. Here's an excerpt from one of her recent interviews. Six questions on emotions and culture for Dr. Mosquito. Question, what has surprised you the most from your research on emotions across cultures? 
And in reply, she notes, one thing that has surprised me is how many, how many cultures don't think about their emotions as something that lives inside of an individual, but more as something between people. In those cultures, emotions are what people do together with each other. So when I'm angry, that is something that lives between you and me. Thinking about emotions as living between people has consequences, how we regulate emotions, how we recognize emotions in ourselves and others. This is something that emotional budgeting has addressed and is part of that understanding. And from Dr. Mosquita, this is in support of identifying how emotion is a living transition between two people. Why are emotions a cultural phenomena? Emotions are a cultural phenomena because we learn to have them in a cultural way. We don't really know. She uh, discusses how discrete emotions, when we are born, we only distinguish between pleasant and unpleasant. In interacting with others, we learn to categorize and experience emotions in certain ways. People in different cultures acquire different emotions. For example, people in many Western contexts may think of shame as a bad emotion. But shame is considered a good emotion in other cultures. It is one category with modesty and embarrassment. And these feelings show that you have propriety, that you know your place in the world. Having an emotion like shame when you don't, when you don't behave in ways that fit the cultural norm is considered a good way of doing something about it. In other words, it was a problem-solving solution that our cognitive functioning developed to guide us in behaviors with the ultimate goal of increasing our caring capacity. In our Western cultures, shame is often associated with behaviors that are destructive for the relationship. We withdraw in shame. We don't show ourselves, but in other cultures, it's an emotion that comes with reaching out to others. It repairs relation, relationships. So it's not just the same. Emotion is a differently valued. Emotion itself is different. It develops in a different way and has different consequences for relationships and behavior. You can't say there was shame first and then cultural influence. Rather, the whole phenomenon of the emotion is different across cultures. How you experience shame, whether you reach out or withdraw, how it impacts your reputation and your relationships are all culturally specific. I might add that we may confuse shame with humiliation. And that difference may also play an aspect to our perception that humiliation is soul crushing and shame may be experienced as behavior, rules for behavior in a given social situation. Our emotions experienced similarly, our emotions experienced similarly around the world. Your question, she responds, Dr. Mesquita responds, your question supposes that there is first the emotion and then culture. In my view, according to my research, there isn't an emotion separate from culture. Experience is a combination of your previous experiences, expectations, knowledge, and what is happening in the moment. 
When we talk about shame in Japan or in the U.S., of course, there are elements that are similar around the world. For example, the idea that I did something wrong. But then shame has a different follow-up, a different feel. I think you can't separate what that emotion means to you from how others respond to it in your culture. This idea that emotions are within you and are insulated from culture is itself a Western cultural idea. I don't think it's right. There are certainly elements in the experience of emotions that are recognized across cultures, either types of situation or types of meaning that are similar in different cultural contexts, but we don't have evidence that the experience of emotions is insulated from social context or culture and is always feels exactly the same across different situations or different cultures. Again, in times of change, we can see as we experience emotions as culture that the impact on our thinking and our ability to function cognitively is going to have impact, whether positive or negative. And again, this is in mind how our program reflects that. What are some ways that cultural influences emotions? Emotions <clears throat> are responses of the brain and the body. Universally, we have a body that responds to what happens in the context, but that in itself is not an emotion. It's not that when you lift your head, you'll find your real emotions. We also have social contexts that afford certain ways of being a person with others, she continues. Universally, emotions emerge from interactions with others, and those interactions always happen within the framework of a culture. But from there on, things are different between cultures. Almost everything about emotions is cultural. What we call them, how we think about them, how we regulate them. We learn about emotions from observations but also from how others respond to us. When we have certain emotions, we learn prescriptive norms that include rules about when to have what emotions. Again, research support for the structure of culture to provide us pathways to answers in social situations and guidance. It is clear from the infant and child literature that we have learned we learn a lot about our emotions from our interactions with our caregivers, but social learning continues in adulthood. What happens to people's emotions when they move to other cultures? Everybody who has lived in different cultures has had cultural shock. You thought your emotions were just natural responses to your environment, and when you are planted in another environment, suddenly you see that you are completely inadequate by that other cultural's norms. After a while, you slowly come to expect the emotions of the other culture. You become less sure about your emotions being the default. Over time, when people interact with enough people from another culture and get feedback from them, their emotions acculturate. This is a slow process. It takes immigrant minorities more than one generation to adjust to the new culture's norms. Having experiences with the emotions of other cultures can help you to articulate the nuances of your own emotions. It is important to be aware that your own emotions are not a natural response. They are cultural. 
just like everybody else's emotions. When interacting with people from different cultures, being aware that each person's emotions somehow refer to their own socialization and to their own norms and values is helpful in trying to reach each other. What insights, again, question for Dr. Mesquita, what insights can we gain from understanding other, others' emotional lives? In response, philosopher Owen Flanagan says that learning about the philosophies of different cultures gives you options. I wouldn't be as optimistic in the sense that I think you, can, you can't do emotions by yourself. You do emotions together with other people. Emotions are a way of being a person in the social world. But knowing alternative ways of having emotion gives you perspectives on your own emotions. Sometimes it also provides you a different understanding of your emotions. For example, shame. In itself is not so unbearable that we have to turn it into anger. Shame is unbearable when you have the ambition of being an independent person who needs to feel good about themselves, which is a Western cultural norm. When you feel ashamed, you could say, how important is it that I feel good about myself? If you take some distance from the very cultural goal of feeling self-esteem or independence, then you can live with your shame as it is within that cultural context. In fact, mindfulness approaches of treating people with deep shame or depression come from changing values about what kind of person to be. So understanding how your own emotions are cultured does give you the options that you don't have otherwise. And this is our mantra of awareness. We call it FAR, Function, Awareness, Responsibility. In our program, our Emotional Budgeting Program. And again, this is just an emphasis on this type of response. People's physiological response to emotional events are similar across cultures. So again, this is in, in the beginning of our discussion that cultural function, cognitive functioning, adaptation, culture is an adaptation to cognitive functioning and an influence behavior. So there are feedback loops, an ongoing feedback back to cognitive functioning because in the feedback, all of those interplay will result in the greatest caring capacity of that population in that given moment influence. So we can, for example, know that the Mayans or the Aztecs had a great population. So their culture at that time, in that environment, maximized their caring capacity until there was change. While disease is a physical change that decimated much of the Native Americans, both Central, South, and North, cultural change was also a big factor, likely a big factor in influencing the difficulties of adapting change. And other populations, change had already arrived in different ways that the caring capacity was influenced by either changing environments and the adaptation 
response was too slow or not the right one as an example of people's responses. <clears throat> so people's physiological responses to emotional events are similar cross-culture, but cultural influences people's facial expressive behavior. So although study participants from different cultural backgrounds reported similar emotions and levels of intensity when recalling important episodes of their lives, there were significant differences in facial expressions. So again, we go back to there are physiological similarities, but when it comes down to differences, there are cultural difference feedbacks that give different responses to those uh, facial or emotional cues. So how does culture influence people's responses to emotional events? Studies of emotional response tend to focus on three components, physiology, uh, subjective experience, whether a person's sad, happy, or, uh, their feelings, how intense, and facial expression behavior. Although only a few studies have simultaneously measured these different aspects of emotional response. Those that do tend to observe more similarities than differences in physiological responses between cultures. So the body is responding similarly across cultures. This goes back to the adaptation of cognitive functioning to provide structure answers for people's emotional needs to create the caring capacity of social interaction, to increase caring capacity, which involves social interactions between humans and or animals. Those are important awareness and understanding factors that influence how our brain operates. And I have talked in previous podcasts how the brain is an organ. It has functions that we are not aware of that is continually evolving continuously trying and pushing the boundaries of our abilities to produce, to increase our ability and our populations. It's not an accident that our population grows all the time. That's what we are supposed to do as biological units. That is every biological unit is sets out to do exploit energy and produce and sustain what it produces as far as offspring. And that's what we do. And culture is a part of that structure. So regardless of culture, people tend to respond similarly, physiological expression. At the level of physiological response, heart rate, there are no differences in cross culture. There are as it implies some differences in how the cues are interpreted and rationalized. People suppress their emotions across cultures, but cultural influence is the consequence of the suppression for psychological well-being. Relationships between suppression and psychological well-being varies by culture. True with European Americans, Emotional suppression is associated with higher levels of depression, lower levels of life satisfaction, 
Remember, in these individualistic societies, the expression of emotion is a fundamental aspect of positive interaction with others. On the other hand, since for Hong Kong Chinese, emotional suppression is needed to adjust to others in this interdependent community. Suppressing, suppressing emotions is how to appropriately interact with others. This is just highlighting what I mentioned about the adaptation culture, whether it's this way or that way, it still has its ultimate goal of increasing caring capacity. And the outcome of success, the outcome of success of that adaptation simply this, how much caring capacity was, was available or success of the increase in that caring capacity for that situation and moment and environment. So people's happiness, there are continued research and continued examples of similar facts based on happiness between cultures, cultural influences, and et cetera. These are just examples of structure. These are examples of structure and differences of structure. But ultimately, no matter what the difference, again, the ultimate goal is to increase the caring capacity. So what is the point of all this discussion about culture? We have discussed it in detail in different ways. It is to bring an awareness of how vital cultural traits are to emotional structure. When we begin to feel untethered from our cultural cues, or they become too diffused to provide the necessary guidelines for action. There is likely an increase in unorganized emotional thoughts influencing the brain's ability to process and file with the results of decreasing our functional ability, such as problem solving an event or a relationship. I'm going to remind again, just briefly, how this inter interplays with emotional budgeting because this is so important too. We have uh, in the Autism Podcast, there are perhaps many different ways to point out a finger to the increase of autism spectrum. But there are many on the spectrum, is my belief, that are being influenced with the increase the decrease of cultural content, uh, structure for them that results in an increase in unorganized emotional thoughts. So when I have gone to do cognitive testing or, and uh, with students, it is, again, the glass half full or the glass half empty. When there's an assessment of slow processing speed, many people begin to look at it as a, a functional issue when if you look at it in some aspects and you see data that suggests this individual is actually processing the same amount of information, but it contains a lot more unorganized emotional data that is not being filed 
and is not being organized to be processed. So around and around it accumulates along with those other physiological factors, including pruning issues. So all of this, keep in mind, there are so many interactions in play. But culture, again, may and most likely is one of those structures that for mental health has provided a background of structure in so many ways. And when that is diffused or changes or in many ways uh, unrecognized by the the nonverbal cues, by uh, information coming at us from different sources than what are genetically predisposed to for thousands of years, then we may have an increase in difficulties with ADHD, with all of these symptoms that show difficulty in processing. Not for everyone, and obviously severity is an issue, but when there is at the foundation of beginning to help and provide support for the brain for those things. Culture may be one of those things that we have attended to in the emotional budgeting workbook to provide that structure for the brain. This is not an opinion or judgment value. It is a scientific way, a repeatable scientific way of providing the brain support to file and organize those emotions that would otherwise be supported by highly structured pieces, one of them being culture. And in the face of confusion, uh, more information and in the face of uh, more unorganized emotional responses, then having the brain allowing the brain to organize itself around specific relationships increases the ability of the brain, which it recognizes and a way of organizing and solving and coming to a point in which it can solve problems. This doesn't mean that it supplements or substitutes for culture, but is in fact an artifact of support for the changing times. This is, this provides emotional budgeting provides a pathway for information to be, to be organized and to be categorized and to be put in a way that allows for the brain frees up the brain to provide effective processing. And of course, this is influenced by the severity of an individual's needs, is affected by his ability to uh, the environment and his genetic dispositions. But in all cases, to the level of need, this is, provides one extra support for that cognitive functioning to increase it. In my next podcast, <clears throat> thank you uh, today for that. My next podcast 
we'll lead a discussion of FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. FASD is an umbrella term describing the range of effects that can occur in an individual whose mother drank alcohol during pregnancy. These effects may include physical, mental, behavioral, and learning disabilities with possible lifelong implications. The discussion will include the adverse impact of FASD on cognitive functioning, the identification of FASD, the lifelong issues, social consequences, judicial consequences, prevention and support for individuals suffering from this medical trauma. Consultations are available through my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com for parents and caregivers, individuals and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on amazon.com. Welcome to the brain revolution. Until next time, this is Dr. Paul Sambataro. Consultations are available through emotionalbudgeting.com for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time.